This has always been a favorite passage of a lot of people. I remember, you may remember an old song we used to sing a lot. I guess it's in our song book, but it comes straight from this passage. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We sang that in the early service, and, um, and it's something some of you are familiar with, although I don't hear it much anymore, but it comes straight from this passage, and there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's the invitation that Jesus gives to anyone who comes to him. Soul, rest. I love those two words. That sounds sweet. Rest deep. Rest in your soul. And I want you to say it with me. Soul, rest. I want you to say it slow, just like I say it. Soul, rest. I mean, that's like, it's like what the world is clamoring for, but they can't seem to find. And Jesus says, I want to give it to you. It's what he wants to give us, soul rest. But people envision different things about this. Some people think it's like a good night's sleep or a a good long vacation with a book on the beach. But that's not what this is. This is soul rest. Apparently, it's a need that human beings actually have that they may not realize they have until they don't have it. And Jesus offers it in this passage to people who are weary and heavy laden or who labor and are heavy laden he says, i want to give you this because i recognize that you don't have it you're laboring you are so weighed down by life's stuff and i want to give this to you what would cause people to be labored and heavy laden What would cause people to be beaten down by life to where they need this and recognize it and come to Jesus for it? The best way to explain an answer to this is to stay in the context, and so we're going to do that. We're going to back up to Matthew chapter 9 just for a little second here in verse 35. Jesus went throughout the regions of the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were labored and heavy laden. They were harassed is the word. This is when something from outside of you puts pressure on you and you can't take it. That's harassment spiritually before God. Someone was causing them to be overwhelmed and burdened. In this case, it was all the spiritual things that these leaders and teachers around them were putting on them that were beyond what Scripture said. And I guess the best way to look at that is to go to Matthew chapter 23. Here's what he said of the scribes and Pharisees. And keep in mind, this generation of people he was talking to were largely illiterate. They couldn't read anyway. And even if they could, they don't have access to the words of God like you have. They had to rely on teachers to tell them what God's will was. And these teachers would do that, but they would add things to it. So here's how he describes it. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They are the Moses of of Israel to the people of Israel in Jesus' day. Who was Moses? It was the scribes and Pharisees. And they do. They do do what they do, do what they say, but but don't do what they do, right? Right? Don't do what they preach. But look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
They keep adding more and more. It's never enough. The people can never do enough, believe enough, do right enough to ever be enough. They're burdened with this stuff that these Pharisees put on it, and yet when they come to them saying, give us some help, they won't lift a finger to help them. That's called harassment. Anybody feel a little like that sometimes today? Do we burden people with a little extra demand, a little extra curricular stuff? This is how Peter describes it when they were having this council in Acts chapter 15. They're trying to decide, should we make the Gentiles new to the kingdom? Should we make them like be circumcised? Should we make them observe all our, our meticulous, detailed laws and rules and festivals? Why are you putting God to the test, Peter says, by placing a yoke, and I want you to remember that image, just tap it in your head for a minute. But we're putting a yoke on the neck of these disciples that neither our fathers were Jewish, and we know we couldn't do it. We haven't been able to bear this. We couldn't do this, and yet we're going to put this junk on them. This church, can, can we do that sometimes today? Can we put extra stuff on people? Can sometimes we treat the new covenant the same way they did the old bunch of layers of stuff can the church do this sometimes can we create so many things to do and so many works to accomplish and you feel harassed because you're being taught you have to do this and it's never enough there's never enough to feel any sense of peace and joy in your life because there's something else coming down the pike i've got to do anybody ever felt that way it's called harassed but he also said they were helpless that's the other word this is not so much that someone outside of me is putting pressure on me. It's something within me that puts pressure on me. I'm aware that my own resources aren't enough. I'm, I'm deficient in myself. They knew their sin. They knew their shortcoming. They knew their guilt. They knew their shame. They carried it around with them all the time. But the problem is they didn't know what they could do about it. There was nothing within themselves to be able to meet that deficiency problem. They had no idea what to do with the sin and the guilt and the shame. And so they had this backpack full of it, carrying it around all the time, and it was always on their mind, always weighing them down, and they could not get rid of it. Anybody else feel that way sometimes here? You know your shortcomings. You know you're deficient. You don't know what to do about it. So we throw ourselves into working hard enough to stay a little bit ahead of that feeling. If I work enough and do enough, maybe I'll stay just a step ahead of that feeling of not being enough. Or, or maybe I'll do what the world says to do, just overwork and overcommit. And maybe your busyness will, over, uh, will, will pay it off, right? Like our spiritual resume. Why should God save me? Well, look at my spiritual resume. I do this and this and this and this and this and this. And if I overdo and overcommit enough, maybe, just maybe, that will make me feel enough. But for some reason, it just never does. So what did Jesus do with these people who were weary and heavy laden, who were harassed and helpless? What did he do? Certainly it helped that he was able to heal them, but it also says he, he sent the disciples out to preach to them the kingdom. I want to preach the kingdom. If you will put yourself under the rule of God, you won't feel this way anymore. You'll get soul rest, living under the rule of God gives you soul rest. But what in the world is it? What is that rest that we all find just so hard to grasp? 
Well, just know this, it's not a temporary, it's not a special nap every day at 11 o'clock, get your mat out and let's do our spiritual split. No, it's not a temporary rest at all. It's not a vacation. You get a break every once in a while and God just lets you off the clock. Or, or early retirement. It's like, you know, once you come to God and he saves you, it doesn't matter what you do, so just kind of retire for the rest of your life and don't do anything. It's not any of that. Gary James can tell you. He finally did retire, like in the last three weeks of his life or something. And he said it was a royal waste of time. Kind of that way in the kingdom. It's not an eventual destination. We're not singing about heaven here. We did today. Did you hear? I love that song. What a day that will be. We sing about him, but we're not waiting on heaven for rest. Jesus is not saying, hey, in the sweet by and by, you'll get to rest, so kill yourself until then. No, it's something you can have right now. He wants his people to experience soul rest as a state of constant condition. Not one of these days, like we say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll work now and I'll rest when I'm dead. That's not what God wants. And it's not even inactivity or worklessness. It's not like, it's not like well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll be so comfortable with my spiritual life that I never feel compelled to work. No, no, it's going to motivate you. It's ironic. This rest will motivate you to work. And in fact, it will work until you're weary. But for some reason, physically weary, but you're not spiritually weary. It's like going to church camp with Valley Views Church Camp. If you've ever been there, if you've seen our group, and you imagine living with these young people for a week, we are dead come Friday. But we're not weary. Because when you look back at what happened and what was done for those young people, it, it's restful in your soul. So you can have two people doing the same work in the kingdom and one of them's working in exhaustion and about to break and they're burnout and the other one is working from a state of spiritual rest. It's the same activity, but a different result in each one of them. And two people can be sitting next to each other in church. One of them is like, I'm getting rejuvenated. I'm getting rested. I feel soul rest even while I'm worshiping or I'm doing something with the church. And the other one is not. How do you know the difference? It's weird, isn't it? It's a strange thing. Soul rest is strange. But God wants every one of his people in his kingdom under the rule of God to experience soul rest. And this passage, he tells us some of how. I want you to look at Matthew 11 with me. We're going to take this. The first part is a prayer. Jesus talking to his Father and talking to our Father. And in Matthew, he's constantly teaching us this. Please, don't look at him just as God or as judge, but also see your God as your Father, the one who loves you, right? So he says, at verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign, but he's also Father, that you've hidden these things. These things is kingdom things. You've hidden the kingdom from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Those people at Yale and Harvard who are so brilliant and they think they're so smart and so much above you, they miss this. They're way too smart for the kingdom. But there are people who are everyday people, even children, who understand what giving God your sovereignty over you, letting him rule your life like the, like the snows did yesterday or Friday. And the words I actually said is, are you will? He's, he is Lord 
He's Lord whether you like it or not, but are you willing to name him Lord and you be king, let him be king over your life? Are you going to let him rule your life? If you do that, he wants to give you soul rest. And it's simple. It is simple. It's not complicated. It's not hard. You do not have to have a high IQ, and Mitchell is so grateful for that. You don't have to have a degree. If someone says you have to have a degree, well, then you need to flee because this is not meant for somebody to have to study for hours and hours and days and days to try to figure it out. This is so easy. A caveman can, sorry, a child can do it, right? And notice this, he adds an extra line to this prayer. Yes, Father, this was your gracious will. God wanted to, he wanted to show grace that was simple, yet profound and powerful. I do have a degree, and I love it, and I like diving into Bible texts and trying to understand things that I never will understand. And I realized when I got a degree, I'm dumber than I was before. But my grandmother, who never got that kind of degree, I don't even know if she had a high school diploma or not, she knew kingdom. She lived kingdom in front of me for years. And that's the kingdom we've been given. You don't have to be brilliant in the world's way. In fact, sometimes that gets in your way because he didn't want to select few snobby people to be able to figure out the secrets of the kingdom. He wanted children to participate. It's simple. And when you have to read long and study hard and figure this thing and tear it apart in order to figure out kingdom stuff, listen, you're on the wrong track. This is a simple deal. Second notice, it's a proposition, he says. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. God has given all His resources and all His status and all His favor and all His joy and all His power to Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'm the one, I'm the only way to the Father. And I know for our world that is so snobby and sophisticated, this is narrow, exclusive, and arrogant. except that it's right. For Jesus to say, the only way you get the resource, access to the Father and access to the Father's resources is in me? Y'all, now there's people who want to argue that just makes us narrow, but listen, this makes life easier. I don't have to go on the hunt and search for all the options and try to figure out what they are. And I don't have to go through Buddha and, and all the Islam and all the others. I don't have to go through all that stuff. Just go to Jesus. It makes it so much easier. Like your wife might say to you, hey, honey, go and get some green beans from Walmart. Do you know what, she, what a futile exercise that is? There's eight different brands, and then there's the French cut. French cut green beans. What are the French doing cutting green beans? And then there's these half-cut things, and then there's whole things, and then these long ones you find at Chinese restaurants. And then there's ones that like, we're, it's a green bean, but it's actually blue. Isn't that neat? You who? I mean, that kind of stuff. There's all that stuff. How in the world? I don't know how to figure it out. I watch gun smoke every once in a while. I have become old because I know it from the commercials that show on the shows that I watch. Medicare Advantage plans. I'm watching ME, True Grit, INSP, got Mayberry stuff, and I've got Gunsmoke stuff, and every commercial 
is these old people telling me what kind of Medicare Advantage plan I need to get. And it's so important. You've got to go and you've got to call and you've got to figure out what they cover and whether they cover your medications or not. And you're always wondering, is this really the best plan or not? And then by the time you know you're locked in for a year and you're miserable because you realize I chose the wrong one and you've got to start researching for the next fall. Listen, y'all, you don't have to do that. Just come to Jesus. One way. Exclusive? Yes. Peacefully easy. I love this. And then the last thing he says is a promise. What happens if you do? What happens if you do come to Jesus? What will you get? You will get rest. Soul rest. And by the way, you don't have to buy it. He's going to give it to you. You can, you can only get it from him, and you can only get it from him by him giving it to you. He wants your soul at rest. He doesn't want you striving anymore. He doesn't want you anxious and fretful and uncertain anymore. He wants you at rest. And who are you coming to to get this? You're coming to Jesus, but notice how he describes himself. This is the one time he describes in his own words his own heart. This is the only time we get his actual personality from himself. The official word from him is, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. You're not going to find a Pharisee and a Sadducee who are standing over you, sounding out trumpets on the side of the street or trying to show how much better they are than you or putting extra burdens on you. No, he is He is gentle. And he is lowly, which means he is humble. And he is the servant. We came to church today, and one of the first things we did was gather around a table where our God, our host, observes that he was willing to die for us. What kind of God is this? You won't find this anywhere. There's no other religion on the earth that, that gathers around such a weak Remembrance, a funeral service for our God who died. That's the nature of the God we serve. Who The great song of Philippians 2, he was equal with God and he, he let it go. And he came down here. And he didn't just come down here, he came as a servant low enough to die. Even death on the cross for you. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's the God you're coming to. I'll come to a God like that. I will come to a Savior like that before I'll come to a scribe or a Pharisee who's lording it over the rest of us. He wants you to know exactly who you're coming to. And in the very next chapter, we're going to talk about keeping context. This is what he says. This is the verse he chooses as, the, as kind of like the program for his entire life. In Matthew chapter 12, one verse over, one chapter over. Behold my servant whom I've chosen. Sounds like Matthew 3. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Sounds like what God said of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. I put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Sounds like the spirit coming in Matthew chapter 3 upon him. But notice what he's going to do. This next screen. He will not quarrel. He will not cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice. And he's not loud and obnoxious like your preacher is. He's not loud. He's not obnoxious. He's not self-promoting. A bruised reed he will not break. If you come to him 
and you're like a, a reed, like a, a, like a stalk that's just kind of bent this way and it's about to fall over, if you come to him and you're broken and you're about to break, he will address you and handle you in a way that you will not break. He will be gentle if, if you're like a flickering flame, a smoldering wick, your fire's about to go out, and you feel like you're just about extinguished, you will not quench. You will not be quenched. He's going to take that, and he's going to gently. You know how you do that when a fire's about to go out, and you want it to keep going, and you just gently, you don't want to go, because that would have told, right? Gently, gently just nurture and cultivate that. That's the way our Savior is with us. It's a gentleness I don't have yet. I'm working on it. That's, that's the Savior you're coming to. He's not a bully. He's not a tyrant. He's not obnoxious. You're coming to one who has the heart of an absolute selfless serving servant. That's the Savior you're coming to. And what do you expect? What's going to be involved in coming to Jesus? What does it entail? This sounds weird. You're like, oh, here's the fine print. Here's when you really get the problem, right? This is when we kind of turn the table, right? The bait and switch. This is it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, here's the yoke. The image and the rest doesn't mix, does it? Here, I want to give you soul rest, but wear this yoke. What? Wear this yoke and you'll get the rest? That makes no sense. And Jesus knows that. And I think he uses this as a surprise to us, right? So here's a yoke. Here's a picture of a yoke. You put two animals together. You harness them. And somehow, you put two animals together, you'll get more work than just two animals. They somehow synergistically create even more production than just each one individually or even them added together and here's a an actual image of somebody using it now i'm gonna i'm gonna draw two things from this okay because this is what jesus does about this yoke first of all i want you to know you're yoked together with someone else who's helping you and that someone else is jesus himself he's not the one driving you saw that guy with the with the the the, the reins that's not jesus jesus is the other animal and he's yoking himself to you and all the resources that Jesus has, he's giving to you. It's because you're yoked with him, the Holy Spirit comes in. It's because he's yoked to you, you're yoked to Jesus, that the church becomes part of your life. It's because you're yoked to him that his power and his status as a child of God, loved by God. When God looks at the two of us together, he sees Jesus. That's what he sees when he looks at you. This is amazing. You get all the benefits of Jesus because he's yoked right next to you, but... He is the one in the lead. You are to learn from him because you were the one who was lost. When you are yoked with Jesus, the idea is you become more like Jesus. If you're yoked and he's the leading, he's the leading one in the yoke and you're learning from him and he's gentle and lowly in heart, what are you going to become? 
You're going to become gentle and lowly in heart. You can't, be, and, because here's the deal. I think a lot of times we take this first, oh, I want the salvation and the status and all that, but I just, I want to drag Jesus around with me to my life the way it was before. I, I'm just going to take him and drag him around and have him approve of and endorse everything I did, but, but that's not true. The yoke is you learn from him. You, you start thinking like him, and if you start thinking like him, your thinking's going to change. If you start acting like him, your actions are going to change you are yoked you are harnessed with him now there's this english english teachers have this real picky thing about certain words using the word there right t-h-e-r-e or e-y apostrophe r-e or e-i-r and people get those three confused or here's two of them that i hate affect and effect i'd like to explain the difference but i still after 40 years of english stuff i don't know the difference I'll just write it down, and Becky Mulholland will proofread the bulletin and fix it. Go ahead, fix it. I don't care. I don't even care the difference. Nobody else knows either. If we're all wrong, who cares? But here's, here's one that is now faded away, but I want to see if you old-timers remember this. Last time I heard it, a man named Charles Archer said this. He'll say to a kid, all the kids came, he was a candy man at church, and so he'd come in. he would look at him and say, what did the schools learn you this week? You ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? You younger people don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Because nobody says it that way anymore. It's really weird. What did they learn you at school? Now, you know what really belongs there is the word teach. It's supposed to be teach, but they decided to throw the word. And it's, I think they're kind of right. The question is not what the school teaches. The question is, what did you learn? Because politicians are saying our kids aren't learning it, so therefore schools aren't teaching it. That's not true. They're teaching it a plenty, but there's too many factors that influence whether they actually learn it or not to then set it on just a teacher themselves. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I want you, when you take this yoke, listen, I, I want to give you all the salvation and all the assurance and all the peace that you want, but I want you, when you take this yoke, to start learning from me. I want to be teachable I want to be learnable. I want to, I, I admire him. The reason I come before a savior like this is I think he's worthy of my worship and my imitation. He is absolutely worthy of my following him. And I'm going to be yoked together with him. And by following him around and doing what he's supposed to do, like he does, I'll learn something. Are we learnable people? Two examples real quick. Mark chapter 6 is one of them. You know this is true of Jesus. There were times when he just kind of split town. Everybody was looking for him. They couldn't find him. He was off alone spending time with the Father. He was giving them an example. And in the book of Acts, what we learn is the apostles got it because they did the same thing in the book of Acts. They figured out what this was. But there was this one time in Mark chapter 6 where it says the apostles returned to Jesus. This is after he sent them out on the limited commission. And they came back with all these exciting stories. And they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said, hey, come away by, away by yourselves to a desolate place and let's rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away into the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Jesus, when you are harnessed to him, won't always lead you to go, 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 go. He won't always do that. He's going to lead you to spend some quality time nurturing your inner person. Because what he knows is you can't maintain that kind of pace and still have soul rest 
if you don't have some time with just the Father. How do we know that? Because when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration having this amazing spiritual experience down at the foot is a, is a problem that developed. They brought, this man brought his son to Jesus, couldn't find Jesus, brought him to their disciples and said, his disciples, and they said, he said, would you please cast this demon out? And they couldn't do it. They'd done it many times before, but now they can't. And they don't know why. And Jesus comes down, he takes care of that demon, and the disciples gather around while they're in the house, and they say, why couldn't we do it? And guys, you weren't yoked to me. You're not learning from me. Yes, I do the miracles, and they wear me out at the end of the day. But before I do any of that, I get some time with the Father to make sure I have the inner resources to be able to maintain that. And if you have soul rest quietly, you can have soul rest loud. But if you get rid of one, you'll lose it with the other. And Jesus is saying, I want you to learn from me. Now, here's another one. This one's harder. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you believe he's the Christ, you become a child of God in the waters of baptism. Everyone who loves the Father, you love the Father, you love whoever has been born of him. You, you love your fellow believers. God generates that, pours that love out through the Holy Spirit in you. By this we know we have love. We love the children of God, and we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And you watch people, and they break the commandments all the time, but they still claim to love God, and that's just a little confusing. But if you love God, you'll keep his commandments, and his commandments are, what's the words? Two underlined words, what are they? They are not burdensome. Now, if I didn't put that screen up there, and I just say to you guys, let's take a poll. How many of you think that there's certain commands of God that are burdensome? Raise your hand. Most of us would, but I put that verse up there, so you can't really say that. I mean, John just says we can't. But let's be honest. Are there some commands of God that we look at and we go, that's just burdensome. There's just no way that, that makes the yoke is easy and the burden is light. There's nothing easy or, or light about that. So let me give you one example, like loving your enemies, forgiving those who wrong you. That sounds so counterintuitive, so countercultural, so counterimpulsive, so counter everything I know. And it's too hard. It's difficult. You hear the stories that I do. Did they did that to you? I don't know how you could do that. That is way too much for God to ask. I, I say that a lot. I think that a lot. But Jesus is saying, listen, if, you've gotten, if you're harnessed to me, I'm going to tell you this. You learn from me, you look at the cross and tell me that it was too hard. You look at the cross that I endured and tell me that your situation is just too hard. I'm telling you, it's light, it's easier. And okay, okay, let's try this out. A husband and a wife, they have offended each other. They've done things wrong to each other, any number of things. And for whatever reason, they just can't, they will not repent. They will not ask forgiveness. They will not come. They just, they hold on to their grudges. They're bitter. They're resentful. They're angry. Their hardened hearts are all just lived out before each other in the facial expressions, in their countenance, in the very disposition of the air at home. They're just bitter and angry, and they will not let go of it because it's too hard. This commandment to forgive is too hard. And so they hold on to it and they hate each other their kids see it their kids learn it their families get it their families can't find that right line of peace those friends got to form in different groups and they can hang around certain people certain times but they've got this this thing this party line that i've got to side with you or i got to side with you and all the way through their lives it gets more bitter and more angry and more bullish and it's terrible i guess that's easier 
I guess it's easier. They end up either divorcing or growing old together, living together in the same house, but just hating each other. I've seen both. What if we rewind this for a minute? They're both believers. They both came for soul rest. They're harnessed to Jesus, and Jesus nudges them constantly. Hey, come to me. Learn from me. Look at the cross. Look at how much God loved you and forgave you, even when you didn't ask for it. Look at what God has done for you, and let that generate enough in you to be able to extend that to each other. And suddenly their hearts are softened. They actually come to Jesus. They actually learn from him. They actually forgive each other. They actually uh, repent to each other. They live in peace. All of a sudden, their countenance is different. Their blood pressure is lower. Their kids see it, and they love the peace and harmony of the home. The families are blessed by it, and they have a sense of joy being there for Christmas on both sides of the family. And then all their friends recognize it and recognize something amazing has happened here. Tell me which is easier. Which one's easier? Which one's actually lighter? Which one leads to harmony and peace and joy for the rest of your life? And which one, while maybe more challenging in the moment, is actually the one that releases you to have such joy and peace? In that moment, of anger and bitterness you can't see why you should forgive but you're yoked to Jesus and he says learn of me watch what I do not what you feel if you want soul rest you can have it soul rest it's pretty simple praise the Lord that's what he says in this passage and it's very clear there's one way to get it Good news this morning, church. It's easy, and there's one way, and it's right here through Jesus. Come to him. But if you do, be ready to yoke up. Be ready to be a lifelong learner. But judging from the character of the one I was drawn to in the first place, given the character and the disposition of the one I'm yoked to, given what this Savior was willing to do for me, I want to be like him. And if I can be like him, if we can be like him, it will be the most amazing thing you could do. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. From gentle and humble in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. If there's anyone who needs to come, those who us, uh, of us who have come are singing to encourage you as we stand and sing together.